Welcome everyone to Martiak Market Update with your host, Mark Martiak. Mark is a Managing Director of Investments with AGP, Alliance Global Partners, member of FINRA and SIPIC. This show will explore topics ranging from market updates to the global economy and personal finance. Money is knowledge, and Mark wants to help you navigate your relationship with money by offering timely guidance and his unique perspective. Here's Mark Martiak. I'm Mark Martiak, and this is the Martiak Market Update. Welcome back, and thank you for joining me as we discuss key trends shaping our industries and markets. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming Jordan Jackson, Vice President and Global Market Strategist on the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Global Markets Insights Strategy Team. Our conversation today will address inflation and what it means for your investment portfolio. Before we get started, please indulge me and allow me to tell you a little bit about Jordan. Jordan's responsible for delivering timely market and economic commentary to J.P. Morgan Asset Management clients across the U.S., and he's appeared on Bloomberg, CNBC, and MarketWatch, to name a few. He has authored several papers on the economy and markets with a focus on the public fixed income and monetary policy, and is often quoted in the financial press. In addition, Jordan is responsible for conducting research on the global economy and capital markets, as well as regularly contributing to publications such as The Guide to the Markets and Weekly Market Recap. An employee since 2015, prior to his role on Global Market Insights, he worked on the Global Consultant Strategy Group based here in New York, where he was responsible for serving the investment needs of institutional asset management consultants in North America and Canada. He earned a BA in African-American studies from the University of Virginia and holds his Series 7 and 63 licenses. He is a CFA Level 2 candidate. I'm delighted to welcome Jordan. Good morning, Jordan. Good morning, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Let's dive right into what's going on with the latest inflation numbers. As you are well aware of, and I sat in on one of your webinars yesterday that J.P. Morgan Asset Management held, we discussed how the core inflation number, which rose to 6.2% annualized in October, how that will affect an investor's portfolio. And obviously, the inflation rate well above expectations and, and a 1% increase over the previous month. What I'd like to understand is what are the key factors and what are you seeing that are driving inflation right now? I think that's a, a great place to start, Mark. And when we look under the hood at this red hot inflation uh, that you described, it's really concentrated in a handful of sectors, energy, vehicles, food, and shelter. Now, on the energy side, you've got uh, energy prices that have increased about 30% year over year. And that increase alone contributed about 2.2 percentage points to that overall 6.2% rise at the headline level. Now, this is largely due to very, very strong gains that we've seen in oil prices. The price of a, a West Texas intermediate crude, so WTI crude oil, has more than doubled since last year. So rising from about $40 a barrel in October of 2020, to $82 a barrel in October of this year. So a lot of this price pressures that we're seeing reflects a, a faster rebound in global oil demand and OPEC really slowly bringing supply back to the market. And so that, that's a big contributor to the price gains that we've seen. On vehicles, 
You've got new vehicle prices that were up about 10% year over year, and used vehicle prices were up about 27% year over year. And and this largely reflects a, a lack of inventory in the market, driven in large part by a semiconductor shortage. Uh, and so you're seeing these these big price pressures happening in the vehicles parts of the market. On food, you know, food prices have been been rising very fast at, at grocery stores, up about 5.4%. And for anyone who's been at a restaurant lately, you've probably seen higher prices in restaurants uh, as well. And I think, you know, this is in part some of the supply chain issues that continue to persist uh, in the economy. And I also think this is in part a labor shortage issue uh, as well. And then the last point that I would make is, is is on shelter. Now, shelter accounts for almost a third of the uh, consumer price index or, or CPI. And it includes hotels, apartment rents. But the biggest piece of it is is a concept called owner's equivalent rent. And very simply, that is a, a measure of what homeowners could charge in the market if they were renting rather than owning their own home. And, you know, this is a fairly stable series over a long period of time, but we're starting to see those pressures move higher. As home prices have moved higher, we're seeing that feed into overall rental prices. So that component increased 3.5% year over year in October, and and that contributed to about a 1 percentage point contribution to that 6.2% increase in overall prices. So at a high level, it's it's, it's really these sort of four sectors uh, within the CPI basket Uh, that's driving a lot of these big increases that we're seeing at the headline level. So it doesn't appear as if, for the time being, inflation is transitory, as Fed Chair Powell mentioned in the fall and throughout the summer. That's right. And I think at the beginning of the year, maybe we erroneously assigned, and myself included, sort of this three to six month window in which we expected prices to move higher and then potentially begin to start to reverse course. Uh, But what we're actually seeing is that some of these pressures that I've talked about in a few of these uh, subcomponents of the CPI basket are certainly more persistent than what we had initially anticipated. And and when we listen to companies and when we listen to to, to business owners and, and forecasters, they're expecting these higher prices to persist at least through the first half of next year. And so we may continue to see inflation running above consensus for at least the next couple of months here before prices begin to disinflate, we think, in the second half of next year. If you're an investor, and a large part of our audience are uh, investors, how does inflation affect their different types of investments in their portfolios with the various asset classes, in particular stocks, and bonds and, and real estate and commodities? So we all invest because we expect a return on that investment, right? We want our money to grow so we can benefit from that, that, that growth uh, and for years in the future, you know, in retirements, for, for education. What inflation effectively does is it gradually eats away at that future investment return. And so at a high level, that's why it's so important for us as investors to try to outpace the rate of inflation, not try to hedge inflation or, or keep up with the rate of inflation. I'll give you an example. If you invest $100 in, in stocks and the stock market returns 10% in a given year, you know that $100 is now worth $110. But if prices throughout the, throughout the economy right, have increased by 5%, 
then that $100 that you initially invested, it now costs $105 in order to purchase the same amount of goods and services that you would normally purchase. And so your real return or your inflation-adjusted return on that investment was a gain of around $5, right? Because now to purchase in the, in the economy, it costs $105. You've, you've made $110. Your, your real return on the market was roughly 5%. And I think the challenge that investors have is that when we look at our statements, we don't necessarily see that real return value on our stock portfolio, on our bond portfolio. But we feel it in our everyday lives. We feel inflation when we go to the gas station, when we go to restaurants, when we go to grocery stores. We can feel our purchasing power being eroded by this concept of meaningfully higher inflation. So you talked about you know, traditionally on stocks and bonds. Now, real estate, I think you, you mentioned real estate there, Mark. Real estate sort of acts as a slightly different in that there is a, a, a building cost to, to, to a house, to a building, the, the raw materials, the cement, the brick. And that's directly tied to uh, an inflation basket. And that cost is immediately passed on to the home buyer. So in many ways, uh, real estate can access sort of an inflation hedge as those more raw material costs are immediately passed on to the cost of the structure. I see. And I know that you're privy to a lot of uh, market intelligence for the various asset classes. Do you want to make any comments or, or discuss commodities such as energy and and perhaps the metals. And I know maybe isolating one over another probably uh, wouldn't, uh, you know, we, we couldn't get a full picture, but give me a, in a broad sense how the inflation is, is affecting commodities or, and is it affecting a commodities asset class for, you know, favorably? Because this has been in the recent cycle, commodities has been out of favor recently, meaning since the trough of, uh, of 09 and then leading, you know, right up until the pandemic. Now, can you, can you address that for an investor who has commodities as an allocation in their investment portfolio? Absolutely. So even if we just go to the very basic, what is inflation? Inflation is a measure of the price changes for, for services and goods. And in many cases, those goods are commodities. When you think about inflation over the last decade, you've seen inflation run run south of 2%, running on average in between 1.5% to 2% in, in, in a pre-pandemic society. And with commodity prices specifically, due to things like globalization, technological advancements, we've actually seen goods inflation falling because as you have globalization and, and a lot of these advancements that tends to put downward pressure on the price of commodities. Now, what we've seen more recently as a result of the pandemic, you've seen sort of this, this supply and demand dynamic in the goods parts of the market because we essentially shut down services throughout the global economy, global lockdowns, shutting down restaurants, shutting down uh, businesses. Uh, but we've been able to buy a bunch of stuff, right? I, I have more stuff than I need in my in my home right now. And you know, that demand, that very, very strong demand for for goods has really pushed up a lot of commodity prices, has pushed up oil prices, has pushed up lumber prices, has pushed up copper. And so, you know, those investors who have had exposure to commodities uh, over the past, call it 18 months or so, have done pretty well. And the question becomes, is this going to continue? Well, I think it does. Uh, I think there is a bit more runway for commodities in general to perform well. 
and we also shouldn't uh, uh, forget that there is, uh, you know, additional infrastructure spending uh, that that was just signed. And uh, that's going to provide another source of demand for the broader commodity complex as well. And so I do think there's a bit more runway for those investors uh, in, in commodities. But I think a diversified basket of commodities makes makes a lot of sense. It's, it's materials, it's agriculture, it's energy. It's a broad basket of commodities in this environment. As one integral part of an overall investment portfolio with obviously stocks and bonds as well and and for real estate investors, whether real estate investors have funds or they're investing in hard assets. Absolutely. So yeah, with these inflation surprises that have pushed US inflation to a 30-year high, these inflation concerns have fueled these temporary uh, pandemic-related inflationary pressures, which, which, as you say, could prove uh, persistent. And I also see that raising the risk of a damaging kind of a wage price spiral that could force the Fed into a costly tightening cycle. So where inflation goes from here and what that means for the economy and monetary policy, interest rates and assets is is obviously top of mind for many analysts and, and strategists like you and for investment advisors like me. How can inflation affect the overall investment portfolio? So in other words, when an investor is looking at their portfolio, what do they do to protect their investments? The very same investments that we just uh, we discussed, stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities, what do they do to protect their investments from inflation going forward, especially at year end now, as we approach the end of 2021, and we want to look at uh, how we position our portfolio in the face of inflation? Great questions. You know, I think you can certainly use your more traditional asset classes to try to protect against inflation. And when I say traditional asset classes, uh, I mean things or traditional inflation protected protection asset classes like gold, for an example, uh, like tips, treasury inflation protected securities, for an example. These are, are, are securities that, that, that tend to move with inflation and provide, have historically provided decent hedge in periods of higher inflation. But it goes back to one of the points that I made earlier about do we want to track inflation or do investors effectively want to track the rate of inflation or do we want to outpace the rate of inflation? And I think for investors, as we think about portfolio construction, we really want to outpace the rate of inflation. If I'm going to look into, uh, you know, buy a, a tip for an example, the tip yield currently for 10 years sits at around minus 100 to 110 basis points, minus 1 to 1.1%. So I'm essentially saying if I'm buying a tip today, I am guaranteeing myself that I'm going to be receiving less money in the future, just simply because I'm concerned about the higher degrees of inflation here in the short term. And for us, that's not a a great trade from our perspective. And so when we think about how inflation impacts the overall portfolio and portfolio construction, we have to recognize that the portfolio probably looks a little bit riskier than before. There's probably a little bit more equity in the portfolio, again, because we want to outpace the rate of inflation and we think equities are going to perform well in an environment in which interest rates are, are very low. On the bond side of things, we don't, we, we don't want too much bonds in, in the portfolio because given where interest rates are today, again, you're not being compensated. Those cash flows are being negatively impacted by the higher inflation that that we're seeing. And so they look pretty unattractive given the inflation outlook today. So 
again, it's 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 a diversified basket of equities. It's, it's commodities that can help ride the inflation wave as well. And I think it's also international equities in the portfolio and it's other alternatives, right? Like real estate, infrastructure, where, where investors can gain access to, uh, even private markets uh, as well, given that they have, they're expected to have higher returns going forward in the future. I see. Well, to your points made in what you just said, I've been having conversations with a prospective client this week and other clients about that inflation hurdle and how we have to anticipate the equities, asset class stocks in particular, obviously, uh, outpacing inflation. So it sounds to me, and again, a well-diversified portfolio, sometimes a balanced portfolio, could be 60, 60% equities, 40% uh, fixed income, or it could be 70% equities and, and 30% fixed income with some commodities exposure in between those asset classes. That's, that's important. So what I'm hearing is from what you just shared, we've got to outpace inflation, but commodities and equities are asset classes that we need to potentially overweight, at least uh, for the time being, as we head into, into the new year. I strongly agree. And again, as we sit down with clients, it's a question on what are the client goals? What's the risk tolerance that clients are willing to take? And how can we craft together a diversified portfolio, to your point, Mark, that's going to be, uh, call it an, an all-weather portfolio that can handle the higher degrees of inflation that we're seeing today? Maybe there are some short-term tactical shifts that we want to make in the portfolio to take advantage of, but also an underlying strategic allocation where even if inflation begins to start to move lower, which is the expectation that this portfolio can continue to perform well. So having said that, Jordan, let's turn to interest rates. We've, we've discussed inflationary pressures, and obviously the likelihood is, and, and we, we can't predict the future, of course, but that inflationary pressures will gradually subside at some point. What are you hearing on your team? What are you seeing when JP Morgan Asset Management and the group that you're with focuses on when inflationary pressures are going to subside? What, when do you see that occurring? Later in 2022, do you see that commodity prices will stabilize and durable goods prices will reverse some of their previous run-up? What do you see that in the context of you know, a, a seamless transition from the Fed, the Federal Reserve, tapering to rate hikes in mid-2022. How, how do you see that uh, occurring? Inflation subsiding and then interest rates, as we turn to look at interest rates with the Fed's relationship and obviously looking at the cycle of potential tightening. So I think and we have to unpackage this from, from a couple of different perspectives. But I, I think first on when do we think inflation begins to start to start to ease, inflationary pressures start to ease, I think it's in the second half of, of next year. If we take a step back to the initial comments that I made about energy, about vehicles, about food and, and, and shelter, some of those issues in terms of supply chain issues, particular in, in, in the vehicles and food parts of inflation, will start to work themselves out. And, and we're starting to see signs of that happening already uh, when we look at some of the November data that we've that we start to see come in. Uh, so we do think the second half of next year, we wouldn't be surprised if we saw inflation on a year-over-year -year basis continue to run north of 3% over the first half of the year before disinflating to roughly a 2 to 2.5% two rate by the end of, of 2022. Now, to your second point on how does that impact Federal Reserve policy, 
I think what's really important is when we think about the relationship of interest rates and inflation, the whole idea that the Fed wants stable prices, they want stable inflation, stable 2% inflation, is because they think that's far enough away from a deflationary environment. And it's a run rate in which businesses can remain profitable and consumers uh, can continue to, to spend relatively normally throughout the economy without any sort of, uh, any sort of hiccups. And so what our expectation is from, from interest rates and Fed policy, when inflation is running too high, in many cases, that suggests that aggregate demand is, is very strong. Consumers are very active in, in their spending. So they raise interest rates because they're trying to, to ward off some of that strong demand, right? They're trying to make it a bit more costly to, to lend, to purchase homes, because demand is so strong and it's causing, and, the, and demand is outpacing supply, which in turn pushes prices higher. The challenge that the Fed has is, and, and as we've talked about, Mark, is that inflation has been, is being pushed higher because of supply side issues, not a challenge demand outlook. And so because I, I think there is a risk that if the Fed begins to aggressively hike rates in the second half of 2022, at a point in time where inflation is actually falling because of those supply side uh, issues have finally begun to work themselves out, the Fed could start raising rates and start to choke off demand. And that could be sort of a policy error, if you will, if the Fed is too aggressive in, in raising interest rates. So the markets are currently expecting the Fed to hike two times uh, next year. It's starting to become uh, even more aggressive than that as we're seeing higher inflation in the short term. I think the Fed is going to be a little bit more patient. They're going to want to see how inflation develops, I think, over the, at least the first three quarters of next year. And, and I think they may hike one time uh, next year. I, I have penciled in that they're hiked once in, at their December meeting. But I, I think they want to be a bit patient uh, in their approach towards tightening monetary policy at this point. I see. So you, you forecast that there will be a, an increase, uh, Fed funds rate increase, uh, short term, next year, twice. I think that uh, I personally think that they will increase rates one time next year, but the market thinks that they will increase rates twice next year. I say thanks for clarifying that. Give me the sense of sectors. What sectors are, are we to watch that are going to be more resilient during during these periods now, during the next, let's call it five quarters? You know, well, well we're almost done with this quarter. So when we look back on, on Q4 of 2021, and then we, let's say, fast forward to next year at this time, and we've gone through four and a half, five quarters of, of this uh, potentially, you know, rising inflation and Fed policy potentially tightening. Are there sectors to watch from an investor's perspective that will be more resilient during these periods? So I, I think it's those inflationary type of uh, sectors. And when we talked about commodities, for example, materials, oil, energy, those parts of the market are going to continue to be resilient. We should not forget, you know, China is a big, big component to sort of the goods that are exported from their economy, as well as the imports uh, that they bring in. And I think as China comes back online from their third and, and fourth quarter slowdown and, and, and really start to come back in the first half of next year, uh, that should provide very, very strong support for commodities. Uh, if you think about from an equity perspective, you know, emerging markets, some of those commodity sensitive exporters could potentially do well, right? So parts of emerging markets in Latin America, 
for example, EMEA, for example, could potentially perform well as the global economy comes back online, as you get additional infrastructure spending, you know, providing a strong tailwind to sectors like construction, utilities, mining, uh, for those areas as well. So I think those areas are going to be maybe not free of volatility, but certainly more well-supported in an environment where the global economy is is coming back online and, and recovering very strongly as vaccines continue to progress more aggressively uh, around the rest of the world. Um, again, those economies coming back online from an economic, economic activity perspective, providing a strong tailwind to the commodity complex. Yeah, and you touched on some of those sectors earlier. What about financials, consumer discretionary, healthcare, and of course, the very important tech, IT, everything in in tech uh, and all the sub-segments of technology, Silicon Alley, Silicon Valley, and throughout the Midwest. How do you see, obviously, the inflation that has, has a hold right now and then the Fed policy affecting those particular sectors? Again, financials, consumer discretionary, healthcare, IT. Sure. So, you know, you, you've highlighted some of the more cyclical value parts of the market. So a sector like financials, for an example, in an, in an environment in where we expect interest rates to move higher as investors are looking for more inflation compensation uh, to lend their money out. Again, as inflation moves higher, that suggests that yield curves are going to begin to steepen. And, and, and what are financial companies bread and butter Right, borrowing at the front end and lending at the, at the at the long end, and so as you see yield curves steepen, uh, that net interest margin or that profit that they make uh, on lending to the overall economy, lending to consumers, uh, is going to get larger. It's going to get bigger. Uh, so they'll become more profitable in an environment where where yield curves are are, are steepening. You know, energy as well, also industrials, right? If you think about uh, you know, some of the sectors that were really beat up as a result of the, the pandemic, you know, airlines, for an example, as we start to see business travel pick back up, as many of us, you know, are, are craving to take a vacation, finally, I think, you know, airline stocks can start to be supported as we move over the course of, of next year as well. And you mentioned a bit about, you know, growth and, you know, I think growth, uh, specifically tech, could potentially be challenged uh, in this environment, right? Where you've got sort of these, the, the value trade firming, and and I think the value trade still has maybe another you know eight to ten months to to run here in an environment where where interest rates are, are rising. Some of your long duration equities like technology, then they also trade at uh, higher valuations relative to the rest of the market. Those could potentially be challenged. Good point. Megatech is is obviously challenged with higher valuations as it is, right? So with, with the, the higher valuations intersecting the, uh, the rising inflation and uh, potentially tightening Fed policy, that's a good point. Absolutely. And, and we're also seeing from a regulatory perspective, uh, a bit of a crunch down on a lot of some of these big, these big tech names. And when we also consider as part of this potential reconciliation package, where you now have a 15% global minimum tax and then a 1% tax on, on buybacks, you know, I think technology companies, given that they've, uh, their, their creative uh, bag of accounting tricks and, and given that they have uh, many arms in, in international economies as well, have historically paid a lower effective tax rate than many other sectors, most of the other sectors in the S&P 500. Now with this global minimum tax, uh, they're going to see their effective tax rates increase as a result. 
And that could potentially uh, take some of the wind out the sails from an earnings perspective for a lot of these big tech companies. So there continues to be a few elements to the global narrative that, that suggests, you know, tech may, may take a step back. But I'm still of the opinion that you, you, in this environment, you, you own growth and rent value. As I mentioned, I think the value trade has maybe another eight to 10 months to run. Uh, but there are certainly very supportive secular longer term trend stories that are very supportive of, of tech, of, of healthcare at a reasonable price. And when the, with the expectation that the economy starts to slow uh, at the end of next year and into 2023, investors are going to be willing to pay up for growth assets uh, again at that point. Own growth and rent value. Yep. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> growth and rent value. We'll, uh, we'll use that as a closing mantra for today's episode. Jordan Jackson, Vice President, Global Market Strategist on the J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I uh, look forward to future presentations and having uh, enjoy the holidays ahead. I had a great time this morning. Thank you for having me, Mark, and, and thank you to all the listeners. Stay tuned for our next episode, and uh, that'll be coming shortly. We'll be discussing 2022 market outlook as we wind down the year. If you would like to have a discussion with me about uh, your investment portfolio and how we can be resilient and uh, look at ways to allocate toward asset classes that will be resilient in the, uh, in the face of rising inflation, as well as ways that we can help you maximize your return while mitigating your risk from potentially rising interest rates, email me directly at mmardiak at alliancegcom Thank you again. And as I said, it's been fun. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Martiak Market Update. Mark Martiak is the executive producer. Sean Dooley is producer. And Jennifer Gray is consulting producer and content editor. We also want to thank Libby Grant. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay tuned for Mark's next episode coming soon.